0: Start today's session with a conversation with uh, Sergey uh co-founder and partner at Long VC. Sergey, welcome to the show.
1: Hi everyone. Uh, hi, Ramana. Thanks for having me.
0: Sergey, give us a little bit of uh, introduction about your background as well as about Long VC, and uh, we will uh, get acquainted.
1: Um, sure, absolutely. So. Uh, I do have a bit of a maybe untypical background um, for how I ended up in the venture capital in general. So I, I don't I'm, I'm active in biotech, obviously as, as you might already know, but uh, I don't have the education from the, from the biotech field um, initially. I, call, I come from the quantitative background. Um, where uh, I sort of picked the entrepreneurship journey fairly early. So I built my first company, I was 22 years old. Um, that was in engineering. So I, I pretty much started off from the hardest part. And uh, I started off from what we call now, what is now known as sort of deep tech commercialization, right? So it's heavy IP commercialization. Uh, my first company was in uh, computational food dynamics um, back in the day. So CFD modeling. Uh, wasn't biotech back in the days, but it was sort of heavy science. And then, uh, then I decided, well, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, get into life sciences because that is ultimately where I saw most purpose uh, when it come comes down to added value creation. So I started my second company, um, twenty four years old. Uh, that was in medical devices. So together with a team of engineers, we basically figured out a way of how to manufacture what is now known as drug-eluting coatings for orthopedic and dental implants, right? So essentially customizable um, coatings that, that would allow sort of for faster healing after after the surgery for patients, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, after that one, I, I thought I would even more increase my exposure to pharma. And this is where I essentially took a deep dive into working with other startups uh, for around three or four years. Uh, where I spent most of my time with cardiovascular and regenerative companies in the early stage and preclinical stages, uh, where I helped them fundraise, I helped them define their clinical trial strategies, I helped them define, and that was my sort of primary point of interest. Actually, define their IP protection strategies. I, I always thought that IP was sort of, and and it's kind of true, that IP is sort of the the major selling point of when you're, you know, exiting the company, for example, as a business, right? And, and when you develop it. Um, yeah, and, and, and after after doing this for, for several years, um, I have built another company of mine together with partners, that one is, is in digital health, specifically in patient engagement and recruitment. Um, and it all sort of wrapped up in uh, longevity, uh, as, as a venture capital vehicle, which we have co founded three partners, uh, which we have co-founded pretty much around our network that we have accumulated throughout the years, um, as well as around sort of the opportunities, the beautiful opportunities that we saw. And this is how, very organically, uh, Longevity was essentially born. Um, I can also spend like another, you know, few sentences on what the fund actually does. So, is yes, we talk
0: about Longevity and the investment thesis and the space in general, the longevity space in general.
1: Sure, absolutely. So so the fund was incepted around the idea and around the sector that we knew uh, best, and that is the longevity sector. Now, longevity sector is like, there was a lot of misunderstanding uh, about it publicly, right? Uh, what it is now, though, realistically, it's a very separate piece of biotech that is exploding in terms of the exposure and in terms of the weight in the overall sort of biotech basket of, of other sort of sub industries. And then, and, 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 you know, more narrow focuses because you know biotech is like a very catch-all term anyway like it includes a lot of things so longevity is one of the one of the uh, fastest growing ones and um, as an investor we always looked at longevity uh, in a very uh, pragmatic way so as a fund we're looking at uh, investing on the one hand in the therapeutic vertical where we are investing in early stage disease modifying therapies that uh, relate to age-related diseases. Right? So anything, uh, mostly platform technologies that would help us tackle age-related diseases uh, with a disease modifying effect. And this is where we spend most of our time with immune oncology, with neurodegenerative space, um, as well as more specific tech spaces such as epigenetics or senescent cell clearance, for example. Now, the other vertical, the second vertical of the fund is non-therapeutics non therapeutics is this is, is where we look at early diagnostics as well as all the digital health and data-driven approaches when it comes to age-related diseases now these include um not, but not necessarily exclusively uh, right uh, these include uh, ai for drug discovery absolutely one of the one of the hottest fields very difficult field but one of the hottest fields out there right now uh, mm-hmm. these include all um, sort of areas of, of patient empowerment, patient engagement, and then, you know, speeding up of, of certain clinical processes when it comes down to first, for example, clinical trial setups, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as well as um, all sorts of early stage uh, diagnostics, early stage age related disease diagnostics. Um, so and, and again, we, we can talk about sort of using digital biomarkers for that or, or, or sort of biological biomarkers, uh, both work now uh holistically though uh looking at longevity in general we sort of understand longevity as technologies that allow us as humans um to maintain our healthy human performance for a longer period of time right so it's essentially quality over quantity so it's not about extending the human life or or, you know the possible human lifespan like it's, it's not what we're after we're essentially after systematically removing or tackling these risks that, that make us decline in our performance, right? And this is, this is the investment focus, this is the technological focus. The fund itself is early stage. Um, we're a 35 million euro investment vehicle as we're technically incorporated out of Europe. Uh, but that said, we have a global mandate. So we invest across the US, we invest across Europe. Um, so we don't have any geographic constraints.
0: Are you based in Europe?
1: Uh, we are, so, so the, uh, when we put together, when we put the fund together, um, that happened when COVID just hit. So, so if the whole, the whole setup by default was, was already kind of decentralized, right? So if we're talking about, yes. So, so if we're talking about how our team is set up, so our analysts are everywhere, starting from Bay area, right? Um, San Francisco, um, all the way. To Germany, uh, for example, right? So, so, so we're we're on both we're in both parts of, of the ocean, um, essentially, and uh, yeah, the partners are Latvian born. So the partners are historically out of Latvia, out of Riga, um, and we spend a lot of time here. Although, as we speak now, two of my partners are now in Miami uh, for a conference, and I'm, I'm I'm talking to you out of Europe. So we're kind of moving around all the time.
0: So. This is a very good overview. I want to kind of double click down on a b- bunch of different areas um, that are broadly relevant to digital health because in you know, our community is more on the digital side. So what you said about applying AI to drug discovery is of interest, any kind of quantified uh, health measures is of interest. Uh, so the, those would be the the intersection of computer science and biology is where we our audience would find the most useful um, insights. So if you could, sure. you know, steer the rest of our discussion today on those and and let's double click on each of those. Like let's talk about uh, drug discovery aided by AI. What is the state of the union and where are you? Play? What are some of the case studies in your portfolio? What do you find exciting? What are, your, what are you looking for to invest in?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, that's totally global. doable. So, um, if we're talking about AI for drug discovery in general, uh, the, well, the, question, the first question is why is it important? So, it is immensely important because it optimizes so many processes for, um, for pharmaceutical companies, for study sponsors out there right um, because what we're looking at is we're essentially looking at cutting down uh, costs tremendously, but then we're looking at cutting down time uh, it takes to to come up with sort of a molecule candidate, right um, where you're cutting down two years of lab work, uh, fairly manual work down to 40 days uh, with a with a small molecule candidate generated with AI, right. Um, a very good example from our own practice, and this is this was done when the fund did not exist yet, and that was the deal that was led by, by one of one of our partners in the fund now, um, is of course in Silica Medicine, right? So in Silica Medicine is, and, and they're perfectly Googleable, uh, is led by Alex uh, Javronkov, he's actually a Latvian born as well. Um, so they are now a unicorn, but uh, I think six years ago when in Silica was accepted they were one of the very first ones in the industry that sort of allowed for the hypothesis of using um artificial intelligence um for to to repurpose drugs or to create new drug candidates right um -hmm. six years ago uh they of course um encountered a very significant adoption barrier from uh, major pharma because that was very unconventional um and, and and there was a lot of pushback but then the rest is history. I mean, today they, most, most of Big Pharma, I think, is, is their client um, already. And, and what's most important, the company has transformed from being AI as a service to actually running its own comprehensive platforms uh, that they sell uh, to, to pharmaceutical companies and researchers worldwide, but also developing their own pipeline uh, of drugs where, where they actually started their own clinical trials very recently with two drug candidates. Right, so, so AI for drug discovery has been an immense, um, like quantum leap, <laughs> uh, I, I would be prepared to say, in how we automate and how we speed up drug development processes. Because if you think about it, so it takes 10 and sometimes more actually years to get the drug to the market, 10 yeah. or more years. So if you cut two years out of this picture, it means that you, you can basically create drug candidates much faster. You can iterate about potential drugs for potentially uncurable diseases much faster, and that sort of advances this automation alone advances the field tremendously. It is of course very data dependent, right? Because with all the data companies, it sort of it follows the old statistical garbage and garbage out principle, where you know the as as good as your data is, uh, which you use omics data for example that you use to build your model on um, as, as good the result will be. But nevertheless, I think AI for drug discovery has been one of the, if not the most significant innovation uh, in life sciences and in and, and pharma uh, and, and sort of the digital angle of pharma essentially in, in the last decade.
0: Now, um, how many, so this company that you've invested in that is now a unicorn uh how okay, many okay. drugs are going through this technology right now or how many so, how many by now how many have gone through this technology
1: so so um uh, the, the the business models for these companies uh, mostly differ so the the go-to business model for, for 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 a company like this is is selling its its ai for drug discovery services to pharma right and, and this is where you you kind of don't track how many drugs uh, you know, it, it has been used to, to develop, right? It's it's sort of, it's sold to pharma for research purposes. Um, and Silico, uh, as as such, as a company, has developed its own pipeline of drugs, where they already have several, which they are putting through clinical trials. Yeah, so exactly. they are basically I was trying
0: to understand yeah. um, more in terms of like the industry's evolution, Um, If the pricing model for your company was a drug based per drug pricing model, then we would have a sense of how, you know, how many drugs are going through this kind of uh, uh, technology and uh, just trying to gauge the maturity of the field.
1: Oh, the field is not mature at all. So, so I I don't think, I don't think there is, I don't think there is yet a single uh, AI developed drug in the market uh that is being sold that is being approved that has been approved by the regulator in all three phases of clinical trials right so that that still doesn't exist um i i assume that the first one will be there in the next few years
0: Mm -hmm. okay all right so let's switch gears to another category um pick another category besides uh, ai driven drug discovery where there's a heavy computational heavy computer science element um, and let's double-click down into that in the same way.
1: So, so another another interesting one of digital health, um, for example, if we're talking sort of, you know, uh, if we're talking longevity angle, um, for that matter, is is of course aging clocks, right? Uh, aging clocks and all sort all, all sorts of uh, consumer-facing risk calculators, health risk calculators that are are there in the market, right? So that that's another very interesting angle of how. We've taught algorithms um, to work with clinical data, or or user reported data, or even phenotypical data, um, as as well as how we how we made it consumer facing and, and sort of consumer digestible, right? A very good example of an aging clock company, for example, is Deep Longevity. Um, so so Deep Longevity, um, they actually developed aging clocks as a SaaS, uh, but but they also have sort of a consumer facing part of it, um, and this is where users can uh, essentially dynamically track uh, their biological age versus their chronological age and, and, and essentially track how, how their body ages uh, by feeding in different types of data. And that, and that these types of data are, are phenotypic, uh, user-reported as well as uh, more specific lab data. So you can feed in your blood tests um, and, and some other essentially lab work uh, in order to in order to understand how certain biomarkers um, correlate with 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 the with your biological age and and, and how it matches with your chronological age essentially, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and what users uh, and what users very often find uh, is is that their biological age is actually much more um, than than their chronological age, right? So so we're we're actually older than we than we are. Um, because of a lot of reasons, lifestyle choices, um, you know genetics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so so that's that's one example. Uh, the other example is um, and and that that has been that has been very popular in the industry in digital health entrepreneurs is um, risk calculators. And this is where um, we already have well, a lot of models um, that now have been digitized, where uh, consumer facing models. Uh, that, uh, that have been digitized, where where users can essentially assess their specific disease risks, um, even based on very very simple user inputted or, or or user reported metrics or phenotypic data that that the user inputs. Um, a very good example for it is breast cancer risk calculators, uh, which are several and which have been implemented on the on the state levels. Even I think New Zealand did like a whole campaign. Of introducing this as a digital tool but we also had very good examples here in the baltics for example where companies launched these public facing sort of digital health applications where uh, women were essentially allowed to uh, uh, assess their uh, breast cancer risk um, using a certified sort of academically developed model in a digitized way uh, and then offered Very actionable steps of how to prevent these risks, etc., etc. So, so that's another another neat angle. Um, The third neat angle is um, the digital health component, which has to do, and and this is where I, like, I'll shut up in a second. Uh, So, the digital health component, which has to do with patient engagement, of course, right, or or patient centricity, and this is this is where uh, it is a hugely there there is a lot of competition in the space but it is a hugely untapped field yet in terms of really working mechanics of how to engage patients for so-called real-world data generation for their retention in clinical trials uh for essentially utmost patient centricity uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and like you can write a book already on patient engagement solutions because a lot of companies have tried a lot of things But realistically, the goals still remain the same. How do you put the patient in the center of any clinical research or any sort of data generation activity that that the person is participating in? Um, How do you ensure that consent is properly recorded? Uh, How do you ensure that the patient still remains um, motivated uh, to stay in the trial, to stay in the study? Which UX, UI mechanics do you use? To reward the patient for doing something, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, like you can you can talk a lot about these things, but these are just you know some some I think uh, very very topical examples where where digital health is like on the on the edge with longevity, but but also sort of life science and clinical research acceleration.
0: You haven't said much about um, the DNA side, of said DNA testing and DNA modeling, right. gene modeling, yes. gene editing, all of that. Where where does that sit right now in your? Um investment
1: thesis? So so in our investment thesis, uh, DNA DNA testing as a service, um, it, well, it, it depends on the angle, to be honest, because consumer DNA testing can mean a lot of things these days, right? Uh, and the reason why it can mean a lot of things is that, because DNA testing has sort of uh, it's sequencing capacities, not DNA testing, it's, it's not the right word, but DNA sequencing technological capacity, as sort of, um, defied the Moore's, Moore's law, right? So it has, it has, uh, it, it is becoming cheaper much faster than, than Moore's law would say it, it needs to become cheaper, right? So we, we've basically moved to like 100, 1, 1K, 1,000 US dollars for full genome sequencing, which, which like immensely, immensely cheap, if you compare it to how much it actually cost, uh, was like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? So, um, And and, and as a result of this, you have tons of um, consumer DNA sequencing companies, uh, which offer different degrees of um, detail and and, and different amounts of SNPs uh, that that they look at, right? And and different degrees of depth in their reports that they provide. So in, in our investment thesis, um, we, we have looked, we haven't invested in a single one of them to be completely honest with you, but ha- we have encountered a couple which dealt specifically with um, health risks and identifying uh, certain genes that would lead or that would increase um, the, the, the capacity of the individual to. Uh, to develop certain age-related diseases, and I'm not talking about sort of the BRCA, BRCA1, BRCA2 type of genes, which are you know very common and we know them, um, that that are like cancer genes, for example. But but more specific ones that are that are less studied, right? So, um, but but we haven't we haven't invested in those um, to be completely honest with you, because we we still don't feel like the you know there is there is a lot of longevity angle there. But but that said. Um, the biggest, I think one of the biggest achievements of 21st century in general, when it comes to longevity and digital health is that uh, the societal adoption, like holistic adoption of, of longevity ideas basically comes through self consciousness of public and that self consciousness is basically delivered through the abundance of data we have around us. And so, so you can sequence your genome now for like 200 bucks, right? You have your Apple Watch, which, which constantly monitors your vitals, you, you live in the society, uh, you live in the environment which kind of always provides you with some sort of actionable insights of how you exercise, you know, how you should sleep, how you should eat, that sort of thing. And, and that, that as well helps. Right, so so when asked about longevity in general, for example, we always say, well, there are multiple levels of it, right? And, and, and there is the first level which is happening now on the societal level and that is our self-awareness. And, and this is where the DNA sequencing companies belong for me as well, right? It's, it's like, you know, something at your fingertips which you, which you can do like now.
0: Do you have, um, like, are you looking for something in this DNA testing area or gene sequencing area? that you haven't found yet, but if, I mean, is there something in your head going, Oh, if I could find a company like this, I would like to invest in it. Um,
1: yeah, I think I would be, I would be, uh, looking for, for a merge, uh, between, um, DNA sequencing capacity, like, you know, the, the, the reporting capacity, um, and actionable insights based on that DNA uh, sequencing. So what I mean by that is um, I would be looking at the comprehensive model where the company actually offers you DNA sequencing, um, then offers you a comprehensive report um, and um, either some sort of supplement-based insights or or at least, um, you know, potential checkup or diagnostic-based insights uh, essentially providing user or the client or whatever you want to call it uh, with feedback on what to do now, or or which um, even non-prescription interventions should you actually perform in order to mitigate certain risks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's So 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 a comprehensive end-to-end solution where DNA testing would be sort of the part of the story, right? Um, and then and then we would boil down to some sort of personalized insights and and personalized guidance. That would be pretty interesting, and I think that would resonate uh, quite a bit with, uh, well, at least like Western society, the US part of the world, right, where, where people are very health cautious and, and they're willing um, to, uh, to essentially yeah. perform these. No,
0: I had, a, I had a few conversations recently about DNA testing with some doctors, actually. There's a test yeah. called gallery test that you may be bit, uh, aware of uh, that costs about, I think, uh, 1,000 or 2,000 bucks uh, out of pocket. And uh, I think the resistance that the doctors have on this one is they don't really know what to do with the results, which speaks to what you are talking about, is that, okay, we do the testing, we assess the risks, and, and, okay, then now what? Are we going to do a bunch of invasive biopsies all over the place, or how do you manage this, the data that is going to come out of it? So I think uh, part of the issue right now in terms of adoption is that, okay, you do the test, and then what?
1: Absolutely, you're you're absolutely right with this. So um, th- this this comes comes down to the point where, uh, well, genetics is, is a very good example of a very good illustration of it, but in general, like if we're talking applicability of clinical data, mm-hmm. um, everyone, like a lot of people in the industry sort of shout about, like more data we generate, the better, right? Like we need big data, we need this, we need that. Realistically, we don't know what to do with it technically in a lot of in a lot of cases yes absolutely absolutely now with genetics this is this is very this is very bad uh, on the extreme of it because um so, so so what you were talking about is is our need to educate healthcare professionals to to take action on these mutations or whatever they they see there um, this is this is really this is really limited right now, even in very specific fields. Now, let me just give you like one example, uh, which is very popular in the industry. So, if we look at personalized DNA testing in oncology, for example, where you sequence tumor DNA to find personalized treatment, one of the most yeah. popular ones is is Foundation Medicine, right? So, Foundation Medicine was the one that pioneered the whole personalized DNA sequencing for 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 uh, treatment personalized treatment was bought by Roche, right? So it's now a part of Roche. So, so even with foundation, uh, what happens is an oncologist sends over uh, a tumor sample, foundation sends back a, a 45 pages report with mutations in that tumor. And the oncologist only knows how to act on the, the upper part of the first page. And then mm-hmm. all the rest is basically the FI- FIY information where it's like, we know it's there, but how do I adjust the treatments to target this specific mutation? I have no idea, right? So yeah. so and that happens all over the place.
0: I think you're pointing to a lot of gaps in the industry where there are opportunities for entrepreneurship to figure out, you know, how do you close this loop? Okay, you generate the data, you generate some risks and so forth, then what? And that Ben what question is, is a you know great of set of opportunities for uh, entrepreneurship. My last question. Oh, yeah, we have to move to the right entrepreneur pitches. My last question. What is your assessment of gene editing?
1: Well, well, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a broad, uh, it's a, bit of a broad topic uh, to be to be completely honest with you. So so if if by gene editing we mean we mean CRISPR uh technologies right so uh I, I the the range of applicability of these is 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 huge and and we see it all the way you know from oncology to neurodegenerative diseases to to treatment of chronic illnesses or genetic illnesses such as type 1 diabetes right for example um, we don't see these therapies in the market yet so vast majority of these in fact, I think one gene editing therapy was 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 ever approved, but I might be wrong with this one. Right. So so but very few, if not one. Um, but but we see we see a lot in the in the clinical development pipeline. So CRISPR has, has of course revolutionized the space. What is more interesting in my view, though, um, as, as more interesting than CRISPR is epigenetic reprogramming or epigenetics in general. Because what epigenetics allows you to do, it allows you to change the cell behavior. It allows you to change the way how the cell actually reads the DNA without cutting and, and, and inserting a modified part of the DNA. So essentially the way to think about epigenetic reprogramming is, is to think, uh, there is a very popular analogy in the field where you kind of imagine a CD disk right? And you imagine like with songs with physically like with mp3 songs, songs, and then you imagine the needle, or the laser, which is actually reading that disk, right? And, and, and that and that reading capability um, is basically regulated by the by the epigenetics, which are around your genome with the epigenetic layer. And the older you get, the, the more scratched this disk actually uh, becomes and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the songs they start to skip and your cells they, they in the very same manner, they start losing the ability to repair themselves to, 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 to participate in certain metabolic processes. And this is how you age. This is how you accumulate DNA damage. This is how your body sort mm-hmm. of stops performing well. And so with epigenetics uh, and certain delivery methods, um, you can alter the way how cells actually read DNA. And you can switch on certain processes that were switched off in the certain part of the body. And you can basically rejuvenate um, certain parts of the body. And, and we have one exciting company uh, in this field, which we have invested in, for example, which is Turn Bio Biotechnologies, which is out of Stanford. Uh, Turn Bio, it's, it's pretty google pretty Um And these guys, they started from the ophthalmologic indication, um, mm-hmm. where they basically figured out how to reverse certain degenerative processes in the eyes. Um, and they've now moved to cancer, To to, to generate the first um, oncology data, which is really promising. So, so I think epigenetics mm-hmm. is equally exciting as CRISPR, but it's not that well PR'd about yet. And not well that well known to public, which will change. Um, but yeah, I mean, equally equally huge potential, if not if not bigger.
0: Now, um, a very basic question before we finish: um, there is. The opportunity for gene editing uh, before a baby is born, yeah. and then there is the opportunity for gene editing later in life. You know that is that applies to the entire ten billion population that is coming. Yeah. Um, so I guess you know there each of those are fields in its own in their own rights, right?
1: Uh, absolutely. So, so in the first one, there is of course a huge ethical component if we're talking about sort of pre-birth uh, gene editing. But if you leave that aside for a second, uh, what what we are, what makes total sense is identifying potential uh, life-threatening or or potential disability risking. Uh, yeah. DNA-driven factors for, for, for babies that were not yet born, and, and introducing these changes early so that the new person gets to live a normal life, right? And and so so and this is and that's totally fine by me, uh, to be completely honest, right? Because this is, is this the is science, what science is, is for.
0: The science there in for something like that.
1: Um, On the basic level, yes. Uh, On the commercial level, to my best knowledge, it's not not being done, of course. But on the basic level, uh, we have have indeed uh, seen quite a bit of development for for that. (laughs)
0: This stuff has not come into the venture deal flow yet.
1: Uh, So it it sort of has, uh, but it is still very often in the fundamental science stage. So it's not at the stage where it's a company that is actually going to sell the service to anyone. It's, it's on the fundamental research stage where uh, a, 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 a ton of money uh, and liquidity uh, is needed to, to actually validate this. Now, when it comes down to uh, gene editing in the, in the, in the later life, um, again, it has a very understandable therapeutic angle where, where we have diseases uh, such as ALS, such as MS, such as AZ, Parkinson's, uh, all sorts of cancer risks, you name it, uh, which can be which in, in a lot of ways can be prevented by introducing certain uh, gene edits and uh, I, I think it, it, yeah I mean it, it, it totally makes sense. So if you if you leave aside the ethical component for a second, uh, these are these are all very viable but again, the 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 pre-birth gene editing is still is still something that is deep into R and D.
0: Of course, but the adults are you know post-birth uh, gene editing ha- have you started seeing those kinds of companies in your deal flow?
1: So uh, absolutely. So so CRISPR based uh, CRISPR based therapies. Um, a lot of them are in phase one, phase two clinical trials right now, uh, and these okay. are these are mostly these are mostly in cancer, of course um but also in diseases in in genetic diseases such as type 1 diabetes for example
0: yeah and also the all the entire range of uh, cognitive disabilities right alzheimer's parkinson's schizophrenia bipolar disorder there's a whole range of them
1: yeah so so neurodegenerative the field is a bit uh it's a bit more complicated because if with cancer with certain types of cancer we can uh with certain with, with certain certainty, uh, pardon my expression, with certain certainty say that this gene, the mutation in this gene uh, is, is, is responsible for, for that type of cancer to appear, for example. Then in, in neurodegenerative, so in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, we're very still kind of far to understand the actual disease mechanics. Uh, mm-hmm. We know the symptoms, but we're very bad at understanding why it actually happens. Right? Because we've and, and all the therapies that are around um, and, and approved by FDA, for example, uh, these were only trying to get rid of what seems to be of the of the of the actual consequences of the source of the disease, which we still don't know. Right? So all the analog yeah. plaque uh, removal therapies, et etc, cetera, etc, cetera, these, these have all, in my opinion, failed. Uh, so far, because because that's not the the cause of the disease, um, yeah. But but that but then again, autoimmunity, autoimmune reactions, for example, in MS, can be ultimately the cause of the disease. And with certain gene interventions, and I'm not prepared to say which ones because I'm not a I'm not a KM yeah. well on the field. With certain gene interventions, you might as well be able to alter um, the, these the, these reactions and and, and remove them. Altogether, right? So, uh, you uh, know, is, I kind of summarize
0: it is um, when you are your, you know, peer group in the early stage VC world start to see deals in any of these fields, gene editing that is prenatal, gene editing in after the child is born, in adults, whatever, right. in any of these fields. That means that it has gone a little bit beyond the basic sciences being figured out. So if if it's not hitting your deal flow, that means the basic science has not been figured out yet. But if it's starting to hit your deal flow, then at least we are further along and we will start to see things moving. I know we're probably at least a decade away from all this kind of really impacting human life at scale. but, uh, But it has to first get developed and that development process is going to come through the early stage deal flow pipeline.
1: You're absolutely right. So so for VCs, we kind of step in um, at the stage where the company has already moved past the fundamental science, uh, the fundamental yeah. science level, right? And and that fundamental science level is normally funded by uh, non equity instruments, right? So that is NIH grants, um, all yeah. other foundations. For the matter of fact, uh, the founders of, of longevity the fund have established what we what we have called longevity science foundation and that is the one that actually allocates non, non-dilutive grants to fundamental yeah. research in um in longevity uh in, in yeah. longevity tech for the exact reason of uh a lot of very promising tech actually dies before it can pitch for venture capital, right. because right. it was underfunded yeah. by by well the absence of non non equity instruments. So yeah. you are absolutely right. When VCs invest in it, it already has the shape of a company, right? Yeah, that, that's true.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. We could go on. There's a lot more to discuss, but let's co- you know let's let's have you back sometime in a later date and continue the conversation. It was very nice to meet you Sergey
1: Thank you so much for having me. Always happy to share.
0: Take care.